You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. We're your hosts, Jessica. And Caroline. And this week, we're bringing you an interview with Julia Freeland Fisher, the Director of Education at the Clayton Christensen Institute. Many of you probably know them for the folks that study disruptive innovation, but for our listeners that aren't familiar with the Clayton Christensen Institute, for a decade since Clay Christensen and Michael Horn published Disrupting Class, the team has been known as the leader in blended and personalized learning. That's right, Caroline, and we loved hearing that Julia explored the importance of social capital in her new book, Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. Julia had the benefit of building social capital at a great high school in Oakland, diving into Latin studies at Princeton, and earning a law degree at Yale. Her research confirms reflections on her personal journey, who you know really does matter. We're proud to count Julia as a great friend of Getting Smart. In this podcast, Julia shares more about her new book and describes innovative approaches to helping young people develop social networks. Let's listen in to her discussion with Tom. Julia Freeland Fisher, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. It is such a treat to have you on here. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> Who you know. Yes, we had uh, Better Together came out. Uh, we They're both published by Wiley, so we were both uh, aiming for the finish line together. Yep. Um, Julia, where'd you go to high school, and what, and what kind of uh, student were you in high school? Uh, good question. So I um, I went to a small high school in Oakland, California called College Prep. Um, it's interesting. It was a, a very academically intense high school. And at the beginning, it was it was fairly challenging. Um, and I I had the benefit. I mean, the, the book, as you know, is about networks. I had the benefit of, of being around people that really pushed me um, a lot. Uh, and, and it was the type of school where when I look back, anytime I needed help, there was an adult there. Um, I sometimes joke, I basically lived in the math office because I, I struggled a fair amount in math, but there was always an open door where I could go and get help from an adult. Um, so it was a, it was a phenomenal experience, really a very tight knit community. Um, and I also, um, as we may get to later in this podcast, uh, I actually met my husband there. Um, who I co-wrote this book with. So I have a lot to be grateful for, not just in my <laughs> academic accolades, but also uh, uh, personally. That's great. So you really, it sounds like sort of best case scenario um, as a working example of, of building social capital in high school. Yeah, I'll say the one place, certainly when it comes to strong ties, right? I mean, I literally married someone from my high school. But but I do think it for all of its strengths as an academic community, it was fairly insular. Um, I didn't really know what was happening right. out in the world. Um, I didn't really, I knew That's what my probably parents Probably not a did. whole lot of work-based learning, right? <laughs> Basically none. Um, yeah. And, you know, I didn't, you don't know until you grow up about that blind spot. Um because you're sort of just taught to work really hard um, within the context of textbooks and tests and all of that. And and as much as that served me, I got into good colleges and grad schools and all that. Um, it really was not an open environment. It wasn't an open learning environment. Um, and I you, see that now. You went on to study Latin America at uh, Princeton. Where did your interest in Latin studies come from? Yeah. So I, when I was 16, so still in high school, I participated in a summer program called Amigos, where I lived in rural Honduras for two months doing volunteer work. Um, 
And it was totally eye-opening in the spirit of like, otherwise I was leading this fairly insular existence. Um, it laid bare sort of the vast inequality in the world. And it was like a baptism by fire in all the ways that volunteerism and cross-cultural exchange is quite fraught. So when I got to college, it was still really my passion um, to understand more of the causal mechanisms, the history, the political environment in Latin America that had sort of created some of what I witnessed when I was there. Um, and and just to tie it back to this research in the book, we talk a fair amount, a fair amount about the, the enrichment gap and the enrichment spending gap, which has radically increased over the past few decades. Um, and, and my story, I think it's almost a cliche of like white girl goes to Latin America, but it's a cliche of how that the, the strength of enrichment learning can really play out, right? Like my passion was really born out of that, not born within the classroom. And it directly shaped how I pursued academics in college. Why'd you go to law school? Um, everything comes back to network. So the short answer is that almost every woman in my family, uh, my mom, my sister, my aunt, my cousins, all practicing lawyers. Um, so it was sort of this built-in expectation from early on that I eventually gave into. Uh, the longer reason is also that my first job out of college was actually with an organization called New Schools Venture Fund that supports entrepreneurs in public education. Um, and about a year and a half into that job, Arnie Duncan was appointed to Secretary of Education, and there was sort of an opening in federal policy to really advocate for entrepreneurship at, at scale, sort of nationally. Um, and so I ended up doing sort of, by virtue of that, a lot of policy and advocacy work at New Schools. And I felt like I was um, I still sometimes feel this way, to be honest. I felt like I was saying policy words, but I didn't actually understand the inner workings of policy making. So I thought um, that law school would sort of bring more of that know-how, um, teach me some of that from the inside out. <clears throat> so where where did the interest in education come from? Um, so to be honest, I read a, <laughs> linking back to that Honduras experience while I was there, sort of working through what it meant to be an American coming to quote unquote help in a community I knew nothing about. I started reading a lot of um, Ivan Illich, who's a sort of commentator on all sorts of social issues, but he really, he emphasized sort of the tendency to try and fix things abroad, even when there are vast areas that you probably should be working on at home in your own neighborhood or your own country. Um, and that essay really made it really pushed me to think about okay, what are the issues facing America where I can contribute? Um, and and then the the more by chance piece of that was that I got a fellowship um, through college to to go work at New Schools, and that was once I got to New Schools, I sort of was bitten by the bug of, of education yeah. reform and, and thinking uh, about these vast issues. Right for folks that don't know, New School Venture Fund leading. Uh, intermediary organization in America for 20 years really um, did the most important work uh, to seed and create uh, many of the top charter school networks in this country uh, and then moved into in, into edtech tools. Uh, they run an important national new school grant program. So uh, uh, just an important uh, organization in the education innovation space today. So that explains why a Yale lawyer would want to do, would want to work at a education uh, innovation shop. But uh, how did you get to Clay Christensen's uh, shop? Yeah, I mean, I think, so the, part of the trans 
transition was I did try being a lawyer, but I actually am not an attorney. I never took the bar. So just to be really clear, when people call me a lawyer, I feel like it's a little bit of a false pretense. But um, I, you know, I I tried lawyering for a summer. Law is really based on precedent. So sort of by definition, it is anti-innovation. And that very quickly, I didn't have the patience for it. So I started looking around um, and, you know, true to the theme of this book, my network really came into play. I had a, a former mentor from new schools who I was sort of talking to. And I said, I think I want to write, but I don't know how to write and have impact in education. And, and she sort of gave me license to say, that's okay. There are platforms from which to do that. Um, and then a number of people who I knew from my time at new schools knew Michael Hornwell, who was the founder, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute and was leading sort of the phenomenal education practice um, focused on ed tech at the time. Um, and so got to know him through through that network. And obviously, once you have the chance to work with a brain like Clay Christensen's, you really can't turn it down. We, Since we're talking about Clay, um, you should give us the one minute explanation of disruptive innovation, because Clay is really most associated sure. with that idea. What, that what's the, what does that term mean? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. It's a term that, uh, for better or worse, has really been <laughs> co-opted by by mainstream media and basically anyone living in Silicon Valley. So uh, it gets thrown around a lot. But the the precise definition is innovations that um, uh, that expand access and affordability to consumers for whom products and services were previously out of reach. So oftentimes, when you think disruptive, you just think new and big and exciting and better. Um, but sort of counterintuitively, disruptions often start off looking fairly unimpressive compared to state-of-the-art innovations. So like the first Apple PC could could never compete head-on with big, powerful mainframe computers at the time. The first Sony Walkman was like pretty crummy compared to RCA tabletop radios. But again, these innovations compete on price and then over time get better and better and disrupt incumbent companies or organizations. So that's sort of the like... Uh, in a nutshell definition. And it, it's, a, it's a way to explain at the end of the day, competition and scale um, and, and how various products and services compete over time. So you, you mentioned uh, Michael Horn and your initial focus on blended and personalized learning. Uh, Christensen Institute uh, quickly became known as, as a leading source on those. Uh, you, you developed a great database of blended schools uh, so how on earth does the sector's leading voice on blended and personalized learning decide to study social capital? <laughs> uh, persistence <laughs> and being bothered by uh, some of what I think was ha- has been happening in ed reform. So yeah, when I first joined, you know, and I think he'd admit this, Michael was like, that sounds nice. You know, it was, <laughs> I kept bringing up social capital and it wasn't something that necessarily was front and center for our strategy very rationally at the time, because like you said, blended learning was really, um, it was a really hot topic. It really needed more exploration. Um, so I spent the first few years at the Institute really looking at the rise of blended and competency-based approaches. Um, but I had these two nagging feelings um, doing that work. And the first was that just increasing students' human capital, what they know and what they can do, really doesn't address the whole of opportunity gaps. We know that who you know matters um, immensely. Um, and and it felt sort of like we were selling kids short if the achievement gap was the only metric by which we were sort of um, gauging access to opportunity. Um, and, and the second thing was that 
I was spending all this time analyzing the ed tech market and looking at all of the tools that were coming out and constantly being approached by entrepreneurs with the next best um, ed tech software tool. And, and, and that market was so flooded with content assessment and productivity tools that there was this, this missed opportunity, which is that we weren't using ed tech to connect, um, even though arguably communications technologies is one of the huge breakthroughs of kind of the internet age. Um, and that just seemed nuts to me that we were in possession, technically speaking, of tools that could connect students to all sorts of people, mentors, experts, peers at the press of a button. But like that market was still frankly, almost non-existent. Um, so I, I just sort of, as a side hustle, started mapping that market. Um, and actually, I'm excited to say in a, in a couple of weeks, we're releasing a free version of that market map that now is, you know, over 150 tools that do all sorts of sort of um, <clears throat> put all sorts of connections within reach for students. But it was it was this underexplored pocket of, of that market. So the book uh, taught me uh, a number of interesting things. So the, the book is called uh, Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. Uh, for example, I was surprised to learn that over half of job placements result from a personal connection. And, and that's really the thesis that schools just are not set up to make this a, a priority at all to help build a, a youngster's uh, social capital and social network. Yep, exactly. Um, and, and it's not, you know, we clarify in the book, it's not like schools are not social environments. Um, they're sort of hyper social, but almost to borrow the phrase I used to describe my own school, they're also very insular. And so that means that they sort of perpetuate whatever your inherited network is. And we know that, for example, students whose parents graduated college are, are significantly more networked into the knowledge economy. So you suddenly have students who are inheriting inroads into that economy in a way that their, um, their peers with less educated parents don't, don't enjoy. Um, we also know, again, like I mentioned, there's these enrichment spending gaps, and that helps to explain gaps in what are called informal mentors. So uh, students from top SES quartiles, socioeconomic quartiles, report far more exposure to non-family adults in their lives, be those coaches or teachers or all the, the sort of adults that can spring forth from um, a sort of elaborate and diverse set of enrichment or out-of-school learning activities. So it's it's not that schools are causing these gaps, it's that they're not actually set up to address them in a, in a particularly coherent way beyond putting students in relationship with teachers. And Julia, I thought this uh, quote really summed up the equity issue. A child's network is reservoir of social capital and the ability to bank on that capital for support advice and opportunities down the line remains largely determined by random luck, the luck of where a child is born, whom their parents know, and whom they happen to end up sitting next to you in class. Yeah. So that's really the the problem that you're trying to address here. Yeah, and I um I'll borrow a phrase that I we use in the book that I I stole, not just borrow, stole from a phenomenal social entrepreneur named Eric Wilson who runs a, a nonprofit in Arkansas and is really focused on this issue. And and early on when he and I were talking about the topic, he described the need for innovations that take the chance out of chance encounters. Like right now, we are leaving a lot of this to chance, right? And so some students may have the luck of finding a mentor or having a teacher with whom they have a particularly strong connection or what have you. But 
why not design schools so to take the chance out of that equation um, is sort of our big question. The subtitle of this book is Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. So let's let's run a yeah. uh, develop a short catalog of what what are the categories that you're where you've seen progress and that you're optimistic about. Yeah, this is when I wish a podcast had a whiteboard because I'm like picturing a matrix, but I'll try and voice well, it over. So they're, they're We're doing a blog oh, with it, so we'll have some great oh, show perfect. notes. So we'll, <laughs> we'll include your sketch. Excellent. I'll send you a, a photo afterwards. But I, you know, there's there's three main types or sort of form functions of innovation that we look at in the book. The first are fully virtual connections. So relationships that are sort of um, initiated and conducted in a fully online environment. Uh, the second category is a set of online platforms that are unlocking connections offline. So almost if you think of like Uber for social capital in schools, sort of platforms that can coordinate the logistics of putting students within touch, uh, in touch with more adults in their community. And then the last bucket is what, what are termed in, in education circles as integrated student supports or wraparound services. So these are school-initiated connections that strengthen kind of the network of care surrounding a student. Um, so just quickly, a couple examples from each of those buckets. Fully virtual connections, a lot of people think of as sort of very <laughs> uh, cursory or kind of lame <laughs> um, interactions that may not have sort of the enduring, cozy feel of a mentoring relationship. But tools like Nepris are allowing classrooms to port experts from across the country into their, into their classes to talk about industries that otherwise students might not be exposed to. Um, we talk about, for example, a, a school in rural Texas porting a neurologist from New York City into their classroom. And not only do the students right. get to hear about cutting edge autism research, but they also get to see the New York City sky. I just, uh, Julia, I hung out with a bunch of the new tech schools over the weekend yep. and uh, Cross County High School in rural Arkansas just did a great job of building a virtual mentoring network for their kids. So they, they talk to, uh, yeah, for GSK, yeah. um, scientists in Brussels and, yep. um, professors at MIT. Um, and, and yes, they're virtual, but they're also quite personal and, and can be really impactful. Exactly. And those are the ones just to go back to the definition of disruption. Those are the disruptors. Like we think of them as disrupting the limitations of a student's inherited network um, because we all have an inherited network, right? Like I, my mother is a lawyer. My dad is a psychiatrist. It's like a modern miracle that I'm able to function <laughs> socially in the world. Right. right. But, but th that it has assets and it also has limitations and these tools disrupt those limitations. Um, but, but and the, the other thing I'll emphasize, though, is like those aren't the only sorts of relationships that students need to thrive. Right. Which is why, conversely, we're really excited about innovations that unlock more and stronger face to face caring relationships in students lives. Um, and, and we think those are, you know, of equal importance. One of the things that we learned in doing this research, though, is that um, sometimes the conventional wisdom in education is the stronger the connection, the better, right? That's sort of how the mentoring world thinks about relationships and trusting and caring relationships. But in sociology, there's also a term term of art called the strength of weak ties, meaning um, it, it, what it translates to is actually that our weak ties, our mere acquaintances actually tend to contain more new information and open more doors to new opportunities. And so one of the things I kind of hope 
people take away from the book is that, yes, young people need caring relationships to thrive, but there's also an advantage of having a diverse array of, of weaker, looser connections um, that can expose them to new ideas, new opportunities, new horizons. Hey, listeners, if you are joining us in Nashville in October for INA Cole, we'd love to invite you to a book party we're hosting with Tom and Lydia, the authors of their latest book, Better Together. And Julia will also be in attendance with her new book featured in today's podcast. Shoot us a note to editor at gettingsmart.com. Let us know you want on the guest list and we'll send you details. Let's get back to it. And Julia, in this uh, virtual category, uh, is is uh, virtual reality going to play a useful role in introducing young people to career opportunities? So I may be the only person who uh, <laughs> preaches disruptive innovation and is like very terrified of virtual reality, and I'll tell you why. Um, it's it's because in some of these virtual reality environments, we are simulating relationships as opposed to actually putting students into real relationship, and and that can deliver the one-off benefits of a relationship, right? You can learn about what it means to be a physicist. You can experience, you know, even the work environment of, of being right. a physicist. But if we're not actually investing in the relationship themselves, the the gaps in students' networks will persist. So as much as I think there's a lot of exciting applications for virtual reality, I think there's also a danger in treating them as a surrogate for actual authentic connections that could bear fruit down the line, um, in the way that, you know, we're having a conversation right now, Tom, but also in two weeks, I may have a question about something that I can email you about. Right. right? So, so bearing in mind that a social network is not just its one-off benefits. It's an asset that as things come up in our lives, we can make use of over and over again. All right. The second category, I need you to explain this a little bit more online connecting offline. What are examples? Yeah. So these are online platforms that are sort of lifting the logistical barriers to creating more networked schools locally, uh, network schools locally. So um, a platform called Community Share out of Tucson is doing this. They think of themselves sort of like the Craigslist for teachers to find guest speakers and experts that they can bring into their classrooms. Um, another platform that you all have featured a couple of times on your site called Imblaze, which is a uh, effort of big picture learning is a database of internships that schools can manage to ensure that students can get out into the community and learn. And so these tools aren't necessarily, they're not communications technologies tools, but they're using the power of technology and the efficiency of te technology to coordinate offline relationships and drive down the costs of running those programs. Um, so that's the second species. And we think of those as kind of walled gardens. They're, they're more often than not, they're not curating the actual experts. They're providing schools with the, the online ecosystem to manage their own relationships more efficiently. So let's talk about uh, integrated student services. I guess in that category, I would put uh, advisory, some kind of an advisory structure is often the way secondary schools, at least um, that's part of integrated student services. And it's also a place where you identify the need for additional integrated services? Yeah, exactly. Well, so integrated student supports, that's a term of art that I, I only learned in, in working on this book. I hadn't heard it before, but it, it's sort of um, wraparound services, uh, partially rebranded and partially with some more rigor brought to bear in the research right. around them. So this is all sorts of poverty relief efforts happening in schools. This is um, 
sort of risk identification strategies, which you alluded to, and then sort of swatting around a student or a cohort of at-risk students, all of the supports that may be needed to lift barriers to learning. Um, and and this is re- this this is sort of the less sexy innovation in some ways that we highlight in the book, but I think e- equally crucial, particularly when we're talking about at-risk students. And one of our hypotheses that we float is that um, a lot of wraparound services models are are getting fairly good at increasing access to the sorts of services that students may need, be that access to healthcare, mental health supports, after school supports, uh, mentors. But um, we think the most effective models are the ones that keep teachers in the wraparound services loop, um, meaning teachers are actually directly in touch with whether it's guidance counselors or other student service coordinators at the school. And it means that teachers can actually then tailor educational experiences with these other non-academic factors in mind. And we think those are leading to some of the more impressive results among these programs. We specifically highlight a, a program founded in Boston called City Connects that's seen pretty phenomenal um, longitudinal uh, data coming out of students who receive these services during elementary school and are far more likely to graduate, far more likely to persist and actually see academic gains on test scores. So uh, I guess a a couple of related questions. How do we make social capital more important? Yeah. And, And the related problem is how do we fight the tyranny of time? How do we create time in busy secondary schedules uh, to for things like work-based learning and for mentorships that that will actually build capital so I love that question I, I love that question because I had the sort of ego or simplicity to think at the beginning of this process that I was writing a book about technology um, and over time about halfway through I realized I was writing a book about institutional design so what would the design of a more networked and caring school look like and by the end, when it was maybe too late, but or maybe just beginning, I realized I had been sort of whittling a little soapbox from which I was going to preach about the importance of relationships because it's such an undervalued asset in the opportunity equation in the way that schools think about it today. Um, and so I think that it's it's sort of threefold. On the one hand, we need to design schools differently. And the personalized learning world is starting to get some of this right. We need to, for example, give credit for informal or out-of-school learning, right, which is really what a competency based system does, but those reforms are still sort of, as you know, scaling slowly. Um, We need to have more extended learning opportunities, right? Again, credit bearing out of school learning opportunities. So long as these sort of opportunities are supplemental, I don't have faith that they'll scale or that demand will create a meaningful These are programs like um, LRNG.org, which is trying to expand out of school learning to, to all kids. And it's also policies like what you see in states, particularly in the Northeast, like New Hampshire, although I think Washington State has a fairly, where you are, has a fairly um, uh, promising extended learning opportunity policy in place. But it's it's policies that allow schools to think about awarding credit more flexibly. And then it's infrastructure tools like LRNG that make that feasible at a semi-affordable price tag, right? Because it's- I want to ask you to, to go a little step further and try to describe one version of an ideal high school experience sure. uh, that, that would really build social capital. Like if, if a high school really made this a priority, what are three or four things that they would do differently than the traditional 
uh, high school experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think uh, let's go in Maslow's hierarchy, right? So first you got to figure out what is a high school that shores up a, a, a network of care surrounding a student. Um, because research like Research Out of America's Promise Alliance has shown that access to a caring adult is a predictor of whether you drop out of school or whether you re-engage once you've dropped out. So a, a high school would need to sort of, as soon as a student walks in the door, have a sense of what is your network of care? And if there are gaps there, how are we going to address those either through traditional guidance structures or through more aggressive integrated student support? So that's sort of step one, that that protocol is in place um, to really leverage the caring assets in a student's life or shore those up if they're missing. The second piece is, is more of, um, again, I sort of alluded to this with what, what, what bears credit or not. Um, we think of them as slots. What are the slots through which a student can learn? And right now, the traditional high school, the slot is essentially a course that you walk into that has a teacher of record. Um, and we think that uh, a better model is that a course is one of many ways in which you can earn credit. Um, obviously, we've talked already on this on this about big picture learning. That, so that's a model where you can earn credit by doing an internship. Um, if you take that a step further, you could start to unbundle courses and you can earn some of your credits through out-of-school learning and some of them through more traditional in-school experiences. So that's the idea of sort of like, can we start to break apart this course structure that really has a monopoly on who the student is learning from? The third piece, um, and you've written way more than me about this, so, so I'll defer to you on what the best models are, but is really to start to integrate project-based learning. Um, not just so that students are doing kind of quote unquote hands-on or real world learning, but so that the curriculum welcomes industry experts into the fold. Um, and that can take a variety of forms. One of the things I've been noodling on a bunch for the past few months is what it would look like if for every project a student did, you had to get feedback from someone working in that industry. Even if it's a 15 minute chat, even if that chat is online. Think of the sort of relationships that start to kind of um, spring forth from that. Yeah. Let, um, me just, let me just mention a couple. Um, yeah, go ahead. Del Lago Academy, just north of San Diego, great example of science learning connected to experts in the community. The partnerships not only create real world work experiences for students, but the, the business partners help communicate what's important and really verify the, the science credentials that students are learning. Yep. Another example that we both know, we're both advisors at uh, OneStone in Boise, and we're both a fan of their the student-run marketing program where they work for clients in the Treasure Valley, and they get real tough client feedback when yep. you know a campaign or a logo uh, isn't good enough. So both examples of public product and, and real industry connections. Yep. And I think of uh, examples also that are constantly playing with what's the dosage that you need because it's expensive to run an out-of-school learning program. It's expensive to forge partnerships yeah. with businesses. So I think, again, that's where feedback is exciting to me is it's, it's a lighter lift than a full-fledged internship host model, but you're still putting students in relationship with people beyond the school building. And the last thing I'll mention is, and you've sort of alluded to advisory, I, I think the last component of a kind of networked high school is one that thinks about college and career guidance much more expansively and realizes that 
our current guidance counselor to student ratio, which is average one to 482 or 492 right now, which is, I think, a civil rights violation. But treating that as steady state, we have to put students into a relationship with more more people that can afford them advice. Um, And some of the tools we look at in the book, um, Student Success Agency, are doing that by, by networking students to online, they call them agents, but basically mentors who are students who are in college providing college guidance to high schoolers, right? So it doesn't have to be um, in lieu of a guidance counselor, but there are all sorts of social assets that we could be tapping into beyond the school building to kind of rethink what that, yeah. what that process and even like. with a even with a distributed counseling model, uh, an advisory system where a student checks in with a, a teacher advisor every day, you need a better counselor to student ratio than that, because the counselors are really experts in the system, both yep. uh, when it comes to personal counseling and also career counseling and and uh, post-secondary guidance. I, I'm afraid that even at expensive private schools, uh, students aren't really getting this sort of career and post-secondary guidance that they deserve, given the confusing but but you know wonderfully uh, opportunistic economy that we live in. I think that signals a need for much much better guidance services everywhere. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's it's probably the area where what what's clearest to me that we started to realize in writing this book, which is like everyone who works in education knows that we have a human capital problem, right? Like that is sort of always the lever that is hardest to manage, hardest to fund, hardest to sort of um, innovate around. And if you start to realize how much human capital exists in the world around us and that we actually just need to think about a system that taps that human capital more creatively, it's not going to be about getting rid of teachers or guidance counselors, but we could radically supplement um, the number of participants and, and people engaged with our students. And that's like so, so exciting when you start to think about the possibilities there. All right, Julia, tough question. Did your husband really do the work to uh, earn the width on the on the title of the book? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so my husband's name is Daniel. Uh, he's not on this podcast, but he's about to get home from work, I think. So um, I'm glad you're ans- asking this before he does. Um, he he more than met his contributor obligations. Daniel's like one of the most thorough people I I know, in like a like scary thorough. So he was. A- All right. Would you would you recommend writing a book with a spouse? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I went in, um, eyes wide open. <laughs> like I said, I've known him since we were 14. So he's a known entity, known quantity. Um, but you know, and we also, by the way, we have, uh, what I think is rare these days, a bipartisan marriage. So we were able to check each other on some of the political implications of what we were recommending, but, um, highly recommend it, you know, and I'll say like, I tell this story sometimes when I give talks, but, uh, we got big pushback from, a bunch of people when I asked to have his name put on the book. Um, and, and someone even said to me, uh, in theory, looking out for me, it will look like you couldn't do this without your husband's help. And I can confidently say on the other end, I, I couldn't have. And that's the entire point of the book. Like we don't accomplish things alone in life. So he earned his with, he deserves his with, and uh, I recommend co-authoring. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> well, it's super cool that you guys could do this uh, deep dive together. Yeah. Last question. Just curious about your production function. Um, how, like, how and when and where did you write? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I, I love writing. Um, 
I will be honest, I have a lot of other stuff on my plate in my current role at the Christensen Institute. So that meant this book was mostly written on the weekends um, and, I, and a few sort of extended vacation times. I needed to feel like I didn't have to be answering emails to really like get into the get into the groove. Um, and I'll, I'll just to echo what I just said about Daniel, my husband, but it, it's really good to write to co-author because it keeps the momentum going um, on the thinking and it makes it more fun. So it, it, it was never a chore. Um, even though writing can be really painful, it was never a chore, which is a, a good feeling. Now trying to promote the book feels like a chore, to be honest. I, I'd rather go back to writing another book. Uh, what's your, uh, what's your next book on? Yeah. So I've been noodling about sort of an extension of this work. One of the premises, right, that of networking students into opportunity is networking students across lines of difference, having them meet people they might not otherwise meet. Um, and so I'm, I've been noodling on writing about like odd couples, uh, which if you picture that sort of like those animal memes where there's like a chicken and a Rottweiler who are taking naps together and are best friends, like I'm really fascinated by relationships where at face value, there's profound difference, but there's actually a, a through line of similarity that has somehow been forged and, and created trust. And so I'm really interested in like, what does that look like? And then by extension, how do, how do education systems make that happen at scale? It's interesting, Julia, our new book um, is, is going to uh, summarize everything that we've learned about place-based education, uh, deep connections to place, helping kids appreciate where they're from, helping them build connections to community, community as classroom, Yep. you know, leveraging local assets. And, and it's actually quite uh, re related to your new book. Yeah. I mean, I, so you know that I'm a big fan of place-based because I, I definitely see the connection. I'll say one thing that has been um, humbling as I've started to give talks on, on our research. Um, I think partly because Daniel is a card-carrying libertarian and partly because of the rhetoric in ed reform, we defined opportunity in this book at the level of the individual. So we were imagining an individual student, all of his or her potential, and what would it look like to form a network around him? Um, but, but some of the push, I, I would say pushback we've gotten is that you also have to think about opportunity at the level of the community. Um, and, and when you sort of network a student out of his community, what does that mean? What are the unintended consequences or costs? So I think wrestling with that tension in the context of place-based education is a really interesting project. And I would love to, uh, be a thought partner on that and, and wrestle with that, wrestle on that with you, because I think it's, um, it's something we just didn't appreciate at the front end of this project, but now I'm, I'm really thinking a lot about. Julia Freeland Fisher, we are a huge fan. We love your new book, Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. Go out and get it now. Make it the uh, focus of your first faculty meeting uh, when school fires up again. Every CBO in the country should read it. This is a great book. I just love, love, love the fact that you dove into, into social capital, being the queen of blended learning. <laughs> It's awesome. We really appreciate the work that you're doing and the time to uh, be on the Getting Smart podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a privilege to know you and, and your organization. So thanks for the support. All right. We'll do it again uh, uh, on your next book. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks to Julia for joining us on the podcast this week. It's interesting and challenging to think about the schools and community partners making social capital networks a priority outcome for young people. We appreciate Christensen's leadership on this topic and look forward to learning more. And we also thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to rate and review the podcast. We love reading your comments and it helps your friends find us. 
And for all things innovations and learning, check out gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica and Caroline signing off.